This is Up, the podcast from Union Resources, bringing you friendly chats with theologians about things that matter. We want to serve the church by making resources as freely available as possible. So head over to uniontheology.org for more. Welcome to a very special edition of the Union Podcast. My name is Dan Hames and this time I'm speaking with Colin Nicholl. Colin's a biblical scholar and he taught at University of Cambridge and at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Now he does his biblical studies full-time and his book The Great Christ Comet is all about the star of Bethlehem and it's that which we're going to speak about today. Colin, thank you so much for joining me. I wonder if you'd begin by reminding us about the, the biblical material. What does Matthew in particular tell us about the star? Yeah, the story of the star, well, I should say, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. This has been something we've uh, talked about uh, and tried to arrange for a good little while now, so it's uh, it's good to get, good to speak with you and uh, and your listeners. Um, with the, the, the story of the star is uh, famous from Matthew chapter 2. Uh, there we have uh, the, this amazing incident which occurs after the birth of Jesus. The Magi are uh, these strange figures, these astronomers, astrologers who are uh, in the East, and uh, they appear in Jerusalem having traveled from their Eastern homeland, and they say to the people of Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, uh, we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And then that starts off a series of uh, events uh, which leads to them meeting Herod. Um, Herod, when he meets with the Magi, he asks them, well, he's very eager to know when the star first appeared. And so they tell him, Matthew then tells us later on that uh, the star had first appeared at least one year before Herod gave his order uh, uh, to, to massacre the babies, which he did thereafter. The Magi uh, leave Herod. They uh, set on their way southwards from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and then they see the star going ahead of them. And then when they get to Bethlehem, uh, looking for the child, they see the star standing over the place where the child was, in Matthew's words. Uh, naturally, they are thrilled at this, and as they suspect, it's there that they they find baby Jesus with his mother Mary. Um, so that, in essence, is the story. Thereafter, uh, Herod finds out that the magi what's that the magi haven't come back. The magi have been alerted. Uh, supernaturally that uh, this uh, that they are not to go back to Herod and they take a different route back Herod waits an amount of time waiting for them to come back to report back to him about the child because he's told them that he wants to come and worship the child too uh, but of course that was nonsense he wanted to kill the child and when the Magi don't come back then he sends his uh, his troops down to massacre the babies in the Bethlehem area. So <clears throat> the, that's the, the, the essence of the story, uh, which is a, a, a wonderful story and yet yeah, obviously has a very tragic dimension to it. 
Yeah, and the star has a really sort of pivotal role in the story. Um, historically, I would have just assumed this is some sort of supernatural phenomenon that we can't delve into, don't need to delve into. What what made you get into exploring what the star is? What led you to this sort of quest of discovery? Yeah, I I suppose uh, in my earlier years, I, I wasn't that interested in this issue. Uh, it seemed to me, you know, I didn't really care what it was, if it was a a supernatural entity if it was some kind of natural body uh it, it, it didn't seem that important to me at that time um uh really I was, when i was a, i was really exposed to the debate back in 2009 when my father-in-law uh sent me a, a dvd a kind of popular dvd documentary on the star and that uh, claimed the particular natural view that it was the planet Jupiter and what Jupiter got up to in three to two BC. Uh, and very, you know, I, I watched the presentation. It's quite, it's quite a popular presentation. But coming at, at this whole thing as a biblical scholar, a New Testament scholar in particular, it just struck me that this isn't a natural fit at all with what Matthew actually says. The and it's not a natural fit historically, uh, and, it, and even what I did know about astronomy suggested that it didn't even uh, make a lot of sense uh, in terms of uh, the way ancients would have thought about the stars. Um, so uh, I, I, I was very dissatisfied with that presentation, uh, and I, but it did the, the what it did positively was it got me going back to the text of Matthew and saying, well, you know, let me look at this again, and instead of just kind of ignoring it and and uh, you know, not really taking the debate seriously. Uh, you know, the fact is, uh, really, when we, as biblical scholars, approach uh, a biblical text, um, what we need to do instead of running to backgrounds and then trying to apply them to the biblical text and, and then playing a little bit fast and loose as it applies to the text, you know, saying, well, you know, maybe this bit's poetic license or maybe this bit is a wee bit mythical, some scholars would say, or maybe this bit uh, isn't quite what it seems. Um, and then you're left with a kind of very unsatisfactory uh, account uh, of what Matthew is saying. You know, it doesn't really line up very naturally with it. Uh, you, you're squeezing it in all kinds of ways to make it fit. And uh, my philosophy is, has been since my theological college days, uh, let the biblical text drive any search for backgrounds. Let it be the driving force uh, and let uh, it provide you with the clues uh, with which then you go into the other discipline and seek for satisfactory uh, uh, explanations uh, to elucidate the biblical text. So it's really a, a process of letting the biblical text drive that. And it seemed to me that in the study of the Star of Bethlehem, that hadn't happened, uh, that there really hadn't been that that contentment to just say, well, instead of running to all these different astronomical theories and saying, does this one fit, does this one fit, does this one fit, uh, let's let Matthew drive it and see where we end up. And being someone that has a high respect for the historicity uh, of the Gospels, 
uh, then it, it struck, you know, I have com very much confidence that Matthew is describing history, that what he's described is real, uh, that we don't have to be uh, afraid of the implications of taking Matthew uh, at his word, uh, and that it, it, it's safe to do so. And I think sometimes when I examined my own heart uh, as someone that maybe had been sympathetic to the purely supernatural or miraculous explanation, I realized that really a lot of times that explanation is is kind of a way of trying to avoid having to engage with the issue. Uh, if it's supernatural, then we're able to say, you know, this didn't, there's nothing in uh, history that we really have to look for. We don't have to look for uh, an astronomical event. We're kind of safe, you know, it's beyond the scrutiny or refuting of any uh, scholar. So it tends to be a kind of safe People think of it as a safe view, mm. but the more I looked at it, the more I, I became disillusioned with it because I'm thinking it, it, it actually is is quite unsatisfactory. Uh, you look at what Matthew says; he says it's a star. Uh, well, the word star, aster in Greek, is it, it means an astronomical body. It can be a a star, it can be a planet, it can be a comet, it can be a meteor, uh, it can be various things, but it's an astronomical entity. The language used by Matthew is, a lang is astronomical language. It had the, this, this entity had a rising, that's astro astronomical language, uh, and a, a kind of technical astronomical term. It wouldn't make sense of a uh, uh, really for uh, of a, a, a supernatural entity as such. It's, it's an astronomical term. The fact that the star is uh, visible for a year, uh, you know, because Herod based the slaughter of the infants, the upper age limit for that, uh, on the time when the star first appeared. So, again, wh why is a supernatural star appearing for longer than uh, for a year or more when that doesn't serve a positive purpose in the story? Uh, so there's a lot of things. And I started to think, well, you know, the supernatural view actually raises more questions than it answers. You know, what what did the star do? The mere fact that there's a star doesn't actually help us very much. You know, what does a supernatural star do to persuade Magi that 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 the Messiah has been born and to travel across an inhospitable wilderness uh, hundreds of miles to search for and worship uh, a newborn Messiah? Uh, so. You know, when, when, when you're kind of looking at all of these issues, I started to think, well, this whole thing of uh, the supernatural, so-called supernatural view isn't as impressive as it first appears. And that it's more important for me as, as a biblical scholar and as a Christian to submit to the biblical text. And if the biblical text is giving me indications that uh, we're talking about something uh, natural, an astronomical phenomenon, then uh, it behooves me to... Uh, go in that direction, and hence that launched me then into a uh, into a, a quest to to find the the star of Bethlehem in astronomy. Well, you could almost do a whole separate podcast interview here on a good, healthy approach to biblical studies, which I'll have to restrain myself from doing. Um, but you, you, what are some of the the major theories out there then about the star's identity? You've you've mentioned one about Jupiter. What are what are the other major theories, and what what do you think is wrong with them? Why can't we go there? Well, you know, Jupiter is a relatively common one, or or if not Jupiter, a coming together of Jupiter and some other planet. Uh, 
others have suggested Sir Patrick Moore, uh, a famous presenter of Sky at Night, of course, in the UK, uh, he argued that it was uh, two meteors, uh, shooting stars, in other words. Um, various scholars over the years have suggested maybe it was just an ordinary star. Uh, others have suggested it's a nova, which is a, a kind of exploding star, which appears uh, for a, a little while, or a supernova, which uh, is, is an exploding star, which suddenly becomes extremely bright and uh, one of the brightest bodies in the sky and can remain for uh, months or even uh, a, year, a few years. Um, now, th those are all suggestions that have been put on the table for a lot of times for, for quite a little while. Some of them have different dates and whatever. The problem with those views is that none of them are natural fits with what Matthew actually says. Uh, you know, Matthew describes a star as something that appeared suddenly and remained visible for a set period of time, you know, over a year. Uh, you know, that alone rules out all views except for it being a supernova or a large uh, comet. So, you know, even just that bit of information, it, it narrows down the possibilities a lot. The fact that Matthew says the star did something extraordinary, something extra special uh, and surprising at its rising, uh, that, again, uh, that, uh, that really narrows down the field. The really, none of those things can explain that because a rising uh, is something which, uh, the ancient astronomers could predict, you know, they could predict with the movements of the stars at the time of Jesus' birth. They were able to predict the movements of the planets. They knew when they were going to do rise or um, all the different things in a star's annual career uh, and, and a planet's career. They they knew all of these things. And, and a, a rising was actually visually not a very, uh, neither, neither was it surprising, nor was it spectacular or particularly impressive. So, you know, when, when you have this term rising, it, it, it's, it leaves you kind of a little confused because none of these explanations can explain how the rising in any way was something special. Jerusalem to Bethlehem and then stood over the house, pinpointing the place where Jesus was. Again, these things are not, natural, not naturally explained with reference to any of those theories uh that you know so if, if if we're if we're really allowing matthew to drive the discussion uh then none of these theories really come close to matching what matthew says uh and I, obviously I, I can't go over each individual view in great detail now unless you want to ask me about particular views but um you know in the book the great christ comet i i go into each view and i sit down in, in in detail try and explain simply the astronomy to explain why these views don't really make a lot of sense as regards uh, explaining the star of Bethlehem. Um, you know, some of them require the Magi to have almost terrible eyesight. Some of them have, they have to have strange ideas about astronomy or, or some of them even almost would require an, an iPad with some astronomy software <laughs> on them for the Magi to get it. And, and others of them would require the camels to have some kind of strange disease or, or to be pregnant or something and, and be very, very slow and, and unwieldy because these journey times that are envisioned are, are really ridiculous by ancient standards. And, and others even require the whole chronology of the period, which is very much established in historical in historical circles uh, to be rewritten in order to accommodate their theories. 
So I mean, that's the kind of major theories. Then when you're talking about the, the whole, of course, a, a lot of times you, you, increasingly you get people that are insistent that we're talking simply about myth. Uh, Matthew, uh, you know, they say is just inventing this story. He wants to make Jesus out to be Messiah. And so he creates a star in fulfillment of Balaam's oracle and numbers 2417 about the scepter, the star, which would uh, which would come. And uh, and so Matthew invents this to make Jesus look like the Messiah. But the problem with that uh, is, uh, well, many problems with that. But Matthew is now widely regarded by New Testament scholars as an ancient biographer uh, and biographers in that period, uh, writing about subjects within the previous century, you know, like Suetonius or Tacitus uh, and Luke are notable for making an earnest attempt to write accurate history. Uh, in the case of Matthew, uh, what's really nice is you can compare it to the account of Herod's final years in Josephus, and there you find that uh, it's in perfect accord with what Josephus says. In the latter years, Herod was extremely paranoid. He was dead set on trying to establish his dynasty, uh, find successors, having an awful hard time uh, doing that, and all kinds of shenanigans in the court of Herod and uh, attempted or theories or rumors and perhaps assassination attempts. And then he even ends up executing uh, a few of his sons in order to uh, in order to settle things down and try and stop conspiracies. Uh, so it's in that context then that this incident of the Magi arriving in Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews uh, occurs? And you can understand then why Herod uh, is so uh, paranoid and also so aggressive because he's trying to establish his dynasty and here is a serious threat to his dynasty. Um, the other views, of course, we've talked a little bit about the miraculous view. Uh, there's a kind of variant of that, which is the angelic view, uh, which is popular maybe more in, in Catholic circles. Uh, but again, there, you know, all through this nativity account, we have mentions of angels, uh, explicit mentions of angels, uh, even in the story of of uh, of this of Matthew chapter two. So it would be strange if Matthew is so quick to mention angels throughout, but yet would refer to an angel as a star in this context. Plus, of course, the star, this angel then would be acting so much like a star and for a year, uh, and that the angel is even having a rising like a star. You know, and, and besides that whole idea of this, an angel and a star being equated is, is really more fitting in apocalyptic literature. Uh, it certainly isn't present in, in Matthew. Um, so I think you have uh, a lot of questions raised about these issues. Uh, you know, the simple truth is when you're talking about a star, when you're talking about a, a star that has a rising, and when you're talking about a star that has a rising that is uh, being analyzed and observed over a long period of time by qualified astronomers and astrologers, uh, as the word magi uh, suggests, then really we're wise to agree that it is an astronomical entity, but that to reject these various hypotheses. And so what's really coming out here is that you're being driven by the biblical text. While I guess the, some of the some of those theories are quite... Um, scientific or sort of almost sort of mystical religious um you're a biblical scholar and that's your your expertise has opened up this in a way that 
hasn't really happened before, I guess. Yeah, well, that's part of the the strange nature of this discussion is it's, it's been something that's attracted a lot of uh, ast- astronomers uh, to comment on it. It's a discussion that's uh, attracted uh, lay people, uh, some uh, some people that have come with different types of interests. But really, biblical scholars tended to give the whole conversation a wide berth. It is it's an intimidating uh, to move into a different field. Uh, it's obviously something most people uh, don't have time for and aren't willing to do. Um, it's not within their uh, comfort zone or specialism. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it really, the whole debate was crying out for it. In fact, even some of the astronomers that had written about the star had said, you know, we need the contributions of biblical scholars to, to cast light on some of these things uh, and to, to kind of give some substance and foundation to the discussion. Mm. Uh, so that's uh, one of the things uh, which I think a biblical scholar can do is say, okay, well, you know, this whole thing really depends on Matthew's account. And, and well, not just Matthew, but Matthew primarily, but there's also an account of the star in Ignatius. Uh, he seems to quote a, a first century hymn which talks about the star and that needs to be brought in. But it requires someone who's kind of familiar with ancient literature, familiar with biblical literature in particular, you know, the genre, what kind of literature is it, the grammar, all the different things to really come to an understanding of Matthew's text and then to draw out from Matthew what we can know about the star. And then and only then begin to go into the field of astronomy and ask the question, where, where does this data take us? Um, so that really was the method uh, that uh, I took as I was doing this. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it was, I tell you, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do that. And I understand why biblical scholars generally avoid it. Um, but uh, it seems to me that it's something that, it, that some of us have to be willing to do because the biblical text is crying out for it. Uh, you know, Matthew clearly regards the star as extremely important for authenticating Jesus as Messiah. Uh, the fact that it occurred at the time of his birth, the fact that it led these magi to the conviction that the Messiah had been born at that time, even though they're hundreds of miles away, the fact that it so convinced them that they traveled hundreds of miles, uh, you know, that, this, is, this is something Matthew clearly thinks is important. Uh, and therefore the early church thought was important and something yet as we in the century don't seem to take as seriously. Uh, we tend to think of the star almost in kind of uh, misty terms. We, you know, it's, it's, it's almost got this nice little sentimentality about it. But but the, the what the gospel writers and the early Christians were dead set that we uh, believe is that this is history. This happened in on the earth, this is real, and we need to grapple with the reality of what occurred. These magi were actually doing something that wasn't crazy. Uh, it, it actually made sense. And if we approach it like there was something crazy about it, or then we don't fully engage with and understand the story. So that's part of what drives me in my scholarship, is I want to uh, understand uh, and get into the story, uh, into the history, and feel the nitty-gritty of how it works out, uh, and uh, with a confidence that this did happen historically, and therefore my quest 
into these other disciplines is a worthy one and one which uh, will pay dividends. So we're, we're ruling out the kind of supernatural uh, sentimental theory. We're ruling out the pregnant camels, thankfully. And uh, yeah. what, what you've done is to, you've, you've anchored this um, in something real by saying, this looks like it's a comet. That's the title of your book, The Great Christ Comet. So could you give us some background? What are comets? We, most of our listeners are people interested in theology. And we're not going to have a lot of expertise on astronomy and so on. Would you tell us something about comets? And then um, we'll sort of delve into how, how the, uh, the evidence lines up. Well, in a way, we live at a, a great time for uh, talking about the star of Bethlehem as a comet. I mean, it's an amazing time. Anyone that's followed the news over the last couple of years uh, has been privileged to see incredible images of a comet uh, as the Rosetta mission has has even had a, a lander that's uh, landed in a, a bouncy way onto a comet and sent back a lot of information. Uh, so we are in an amazing position to actually know about comets like no other uh, generation in history. Um, so the, the comets from the images that you see are these uh, dusty, dirty, hilly uh, regions, uh, were very dark and dank, very much looking like big, uh, empty, dusty rocks almost floating around in space. But uh, they're actually uh, full, full of ices. Uh, when I say ices, I mean chemical con concoctions, which are very reactive. And when these comets, these kind of, uh, if you want to say, these icy dirt balls come into the inner solar system, they start to react to the sun and they start to give off gases. Their ices on board start what they call degassing. They convert to gas and then then rocket off uh, the comet's core and taking a lot of dust with it. So what happens is then the dust kind of gathers around this uh, core and then forms what they call a head of a comet. And then other dust uh, is uh, scattered uh, away from the comet and that forms the tail of the comet. You can have different tails. That's too technical for this discussion. But really a comet is famous for its head and its tail. And so... Uh, a comet can be uh, a huge thing. Now, we haven't been uh, privileged to see one of these massively long comets in a long time. Uh, a comet can have a tail which stretches uh, right the way from the horizon all the way up to the, the top of the sky, the zenith, or, or even across to the other side of the horizon. Uh, it's They can be long. They can be very wide. They can be extremely bright, brighter than the full moon. Uh, in our time, we've seen some... We haven't seen that many great comets. We did. Some of us may remember Comet Hale-Bopp back in 1987. Uh, it was a kind of common feature in the evening sky for quite a little while, and that was a a, a great comet. Um, most of us are familiar with Halley's Comet back in 1986. That comes every generation, 70 years or so. Um, and uh, so, comets are these very interesting uh, objects which are really so small and yet become absolutely humongous as they come in to the, uh, toward the sun. Uh, among comets, there are a lot of little dull 
ones that don't even make it bright enough, don't even become bright enough to be seen by the naked eye. But among them, there are these great comets which set themselves apart by virtue of their brightness, by virtue of, of how long and big they are uh, and of how visible they are to, to, uh, to, to, to people. So um, that's really what we're talking about with comets. They're, they're to be distinguished from meteors, which are the little shooting stars uh, that you see when you're out for a walk some evening in the clear skies. Those are just momentary. Comets remain in the sky for days, weeks, months, uh, even over a year. So that's it. I mean, the ancients had a hard time with comets. I mean, we're now understanding comets uh, really for the last, you know, 400 years or so. We really come into a good understanding of comets. But the ancients were really confused by them because they couldn't work out their their orbits. In fact, many times they didn't even realize that they were uh objects like planets that the Babylonians did, but uh, most others up until the medieval period actually thought that they were some kind of uh, exhalations or kind of atmospheric phenomena. Uh, so, you know, the Babylonians at least realized they were like planets. They had orbits, but they couldn't work out their orbits and they couldn't, they tried apparently to predict them, but I don't know that they could have had much success in that. Um, generally they, they had principles for interpreting them. They were a bit strange because like the planets would keep in a certain band of sky, but these comets could go everywhere. And so they couldn't, the normal rules you apply to interpreting celestial bodies didn't apply in the case of comets. So they had to apply these different rules. Um, so a lot of times they thought they were bad omens, but many times they thought they were good omens, depended on on where the comet went, what it looked like and, and those kinds of things. Uh, so uh, these comets are are a fascinating phenomenon, and 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 to me, it's a, a wonderful thing that we get to have this this understanding of comets now in a way that humans never have before. And, and one of the things I would say, any, anyone that's even remotely interested in comets, I, what I try to do in the Great Christ Comet is give a very clear uh, introduction to comets uh, that will that's very highly illustrated with some of the most beautiful comet imagery. Uh, in uh, in existence, yeah. uh, all in an attempt to try and make this really clear to the non-astronomical uh, uh, reader, especially theologians, so they can see what comets, what I'm talking about, what uh, what these comets do, how they behave. We've we've uh, tried to have develop a, a really a, a special set of illustrations to help everyone understand that. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm it's one thing I'm pleased about, and I hope it, it opens up uh, your listeners. Uh, eyes and minds to the wonders in the sky above uh, and it's a it's a beautiful thing really you know sometimes we theologians we we kind of stay inside we read our books we study um, and we don't admire the wonders of the creation but it, it is a a beautiful thing to acknowledge the creator's handiwork yeah that that part of the book actually was, was so fun I, I really enjoyed that i love the pictures and your wife was quite involved in that wasn't she i, I noticed in the book that's right. No, my wife is a, an artist. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, uh, was a, a lot of work. A lot of those images are, are painstakingly uh, developed, you know, every little dot and, the, and it has to be just perfect. And, and, and uh, it was a lot of research, uh, you know, among other things, you know, we had to work out, you know, where, how did the ancients plot the sky? You know, when they said there's a certain constellation and they envisioned the different parts of the constellation in relation to stars, you have to put that all together. Uh, so it was a lot of detailed uh, and painstaking work, but it was very exciting because all through it we were making these discoveries 
And it was a, a kind of nice coming together of uh, the kind of theological, historical approach and the art and and uh, and those things. And, and one of the things that struck me about this is, you know, the Star of Bethlehem was a, a beautiful, a beautiful phenomenon. Uh, and I, I didn't feel that it would be appropriate to produce a book about the star, which was simply uh, words on a page and didn't capture for readers the beauty of what it was. And so uh, in particular, I was influenced by one particular book uh, on the history of comets and uh, where I saw they brought together some uh, art and I thought, you know, this need, this is what I need to do. And thankfully, uh, I found a publisher um, who was willing to go for that and willing to uh, go for high quality renderings of these images and uh, which required high quality paper. Um, so but at the end of the day, I feel it's definitely worth it because it is, uh, I think, a beautiful book. And it's uh, a book that um, which it was certainly we strove to make uh, to the degree that we could worthy of uh the star yeah it is is a beautiful book and it's great theology ought to be beautiful that that just makes so much sense doesn't it we're also really grateful for your sort of family business there in producing that well it was it's one of those things that is an amazing dynamic um when you're working and you know my wife's producing the image and and capturing some of these things and we're looking at some uh, artifacts that really hadn't haven't been really part haven't been made mainstream yet, and so we're uh, we're working on the image of Nebuchadnezzar in uh, the book is uh, really the first proper image of Nebuchadnezzar uh, based upon uh, a very important finding. The, the the gentleman has access to that or who can, who owns that uh, particular. Uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar to to capture it and similarly with some of those other images there's a lot of it's very painstakingly worked through and, and quite original uh, and, and so we, we've we've really gone out of our way uh, to, to really try and draw this in because you know in, in normal times you know a picture is worth a thousand words but when it comes to astronomy uh, and comets I think a picture is worth a hundred thousand words if I can put it that way yeah I love I love it that's great um, well, let's go back to the star then. So it's not a totally novel idea, is it, that, that the star was a comet? And people have suggested it's um, a couple of a couple of different theories that it might be already known comets. Um, is it possible that it could be one of those, or is that not is that not an option? Well, you're right. You know, back in uh, the third century, Origen uh, states that the star was a comet, and uh, the others before him in the second, even into the first century, seem to have shared that view. Certainly, Ignatius's description, uh, the only astronomical entity that it, that fits with it is a comet, and it's uh, quite clear that he's uh, viewing it as among the astronomical bodies and engaging with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, so, you, you know, there you, you're getting and it's bright comets. It's quite an interesting, actually, but a lot of times we don't give as much attention to, uh, for example, the Ignatius uh, account of the star, but, but you find it's uh, very enlightening. But uh, when you move into the modern era, uh, yeah, there's a, a, the suggestion that it was Halley's Comet in 12 BC. Uh, that actually comes up a lot. Almost every commentary that you pick up, uh, that will be their focus. 
uh, was it Halley's Comet? And then they say, no, probably not. That's too early. And then they, move, they forget about Comet. So it's basically, if it's not Halley's Comet, it's not nothing. Um, and sometimes they go on to mention the, a 5 BC Comet reported by the Chinese. Um, and then, you know, that's if you're lucky. And then, no, it's probably not that. And then move on. That's the end of the, the Comet View discussion. If, ignoring the fact that the vast majority of comets are uh, are long period comets. That's particular uh, other comets, unlike Halley's Comet. Um, Halley's Comet is actually exceptional in that it has a very short kind of orbit, relatively speaking, uh, and yet is a great comet. But the vast majority of great comets are, are, are different from Halley's. Um, so anyway, could it have been Halley's in 12 BC? No, apart from the fact that that's way too early and would have got the Magi there way before Jesus was born. Um, the, the, the Halley's Comet we know from Chinese uh, records at the time because fortuitously uh, that particular manifestation of Halley's Comet was regarded as of great astrological significance to the Chinese as they uh, paradigmed the sky and the different constellations that they uh, they imagined in the sky. Uh, they perceived it to have great meaning and great significance for uh, the Han dynasty. And uh, so they kept detailed records of this and we know that it only was there in the sky for 56 days. So that doesn't line up very well with Matthew who maintains that the star was there for a year or longer. Uh, Halley's Comet at that time, we have, we're able to put together its orbit. That means that we're able to know where it was in the sky and everything about it uh, based upon the Chinese reports. And so we know it never appeared in the south. Uh, so they couldn't have led the Magi to uh, Bethlehem from Jerusalem. Uh, so, you know, for those reasons, uh, Halley's Comet in 12 BC couldn't be the star. What about this 5 BC Chinese comet? There's actually two comets in 5 BC. Uh, most people don't know about the other one, but neither uh, work. The the 5 BC one that everyone talks about, it, it, it was only visible for 70 days uh, and it did not uh, have a rising um, nor actually did Halley's Comet in 12 BC. They didn't have a rising. So what the Magi say about the star wouldn't apply in those cases. So uh, neither of those two uh, comets works. Um, they don't match what Matthew says about the star, and therefore we have to then go searching uh, elsewhere for... Now, I suppose part of the problem here is that everyone seems to be assuming, because they don't know the kind of astronomical situation, they don't know historical situation with their records, Everyone's assuming that, well, if there was a great comet, there, there would be a record of it somewhere. The problem is uh, that's, that's simply not true. The vast majority of comet records, including the records of many of the greatest comets at the time, uh, are absent. They've been lost to history uh, over the period since. And so we only have putting together all the records that we have from China, including uh, the Greco-Roman world. Uh, we have for that period from 50 BC to 50 AD, we really only have a third of the comets that would have occurred during that time. Uh, let me give you another example. Josephus. Josephus mentions this massive, uh, this great comet. It had to be a large comet because uh, it, it remained, he says, in the sky for a year. That, any astronomer that knows about comets will tell you that that means it had to be a large comet, uh, an intrinsically bright comet to remain visible for that long. Uh, very much like, actually, the 
the Christ comet, uh, the star of Bethlehem comet. Uh, and yet that Josephus mentions this great comet, you look in the surviving Chinese records and it's it's not there. Well, that's because uh, most of the records are absent. Of, the, of that third, you know, we only have a third of this of the comets are remaining, uh, the records remaining. Of that third, half of them are Chinese records and half of them are scattered references in the Greco-Roman literature. So we're really, uh, we can tell from looking at the Greco-Roman stuff that a lot of great comets are not, are no longer, we don't have have the record of the Chinese comet any longer. So anyway, that's part of the problem is if everyone's assuming that there would be a record of the comet, they're making a big mistake because that's just simply not the way it was with ancient comets. So that then opens up the door to the possibility that we have here a comet that is uh, just like in Josephus's case, is uniquely surviving in Josephus's account. So we have a comet that's uniquely surviving in early Christian accounts, such as Matthew and Ignatius. Uh, so that's very much in keeping with why the records of the Chinese comets remained, because they had particular significance uh, for the writer of the particular account. Uh, of, of the, for example, the historian of the of the Han Dynasty. So uh, it, it's, it's very much in keeping with with our knowledge about other comets based upon those who valued them. So that opens up the door then, you see, to following Matthew to where Matthew leads us. So no longer do we have to go in search of existing uh, records, uh, surviving records of comets from China. Uh, we actually realize, wait a minute, they're simply very patchy. And so we need to go follow Matthew and say, if, if he's referring to a comet, then we need to allow him to give us the data to understand more about this comet. Great. And you've, you've used already the phrase a couple of times, a great comet. Could you tell us what, what is a great comet? A great comet is really one that sets itself apart from run-of-the-mill comets. Uh, a great comet is uh, distinguished uh, by its, uh, the size of the tail the size and brightness of the head. Uh, it usually uh, has to attain to a significant level of brightness. Oftentimes these great comets are uh, daytime comets. They're so bright that they actually, you can see them during the, the, the daytime sky. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, their brightness, some of the brightest comets have been much brighter than the full moon uh, and even been able to cast a shadow. Uh, that's uh, these, these comets can be really intensely bright. Now, a, a great comet is great because it makes a close pass by the sun. Uh, the closer a comet comes to the sun, the more it's reacting to the sun's presence, the more dust it's losing, and therefore the more dust is catching the sunlight and the brighter it gets. Uh, as well as that, the closer it comes to Earth, uh, then the better we see it. Uh, the comet Heobob that we mentioned earlier in 1997 uh, that was a, a really great comet. The problem for Earth was that we kind of had a back row seat because Earth's place in its orbit wasn't quite right for seeing the comet uh, as as well as we could have seen it had it been had Earth's had we been at a different point of our orbit at that uh, at that time we would have had an amazing, much more amazing, uh, much brighter comet, longer tail, uh, a huge uh, head of the comet. It would have been an absolutely mind-boggling thing uh, to encounter. So mm. uh, that's really the dynamics of what makes a great comet close to the sun and close to the earth and itself the comet being being large really helps. 
because that means it's if a, if a comet is large, it's full of these volatiles and then it reacts, starts reacting to the sun early and, it, and it's got so many more, uh, so much more dust to get rid of and, and, and spout off. And then that reacts to the sun. And so it becomes gloriously bright. And that's what makes a great comet. It sounds amazing. It's almost a sort of unbelievable thought that what the, the wise men would have seen this huge bright body in the sky. Do, do, do these things come around very often? Are any of us going to get a chance to see one? Can we or can we ever predict them? You know, uh, we, you, the the thing about comets is you cannot predict. Uh, uh, well, the particular comets we're talking about are long what we call long period comets. That means they they have a very very elongated orbit, uh, which means. Uh, are unlike short period comets, which go around every three, four, five, ten years, uh, or 100, 200 years, where, where you're able to, in the scientific period, plot them and work out when they're going to come back. So, yeah, okay, short period comets, we know all about, we know their orbits, we know everything you know, about how they move. The, the problem is the long period comets. Uh, long period comets, you don't really see... Uh, until they're, you don't really notice them against because they're very dark before they've started reacting to the to the sun. They're completely black, the blackest thing in the solar system, uh, and you, they're you, they're really invisible to us. So it's really only when they come in a couple of years nowadays, a couple of years beforehand, you spot them, and uh, at that point, then you can start to make predictions. You try to work out its orbit, where is it going to go, what's it going to do. Uh, but prior to that, you wouldn't really know. Now, that's the thing. Uh, will there be a, a great comet soon? We just don't know. We get we were disappointed uh, a little while ago with Comet Ison, which we thought was going to be brighter than the full moon, but it kind of disappointed. Uh, it, it, it fell to pieces before it uh, attained to anything. Um, as can happen if a comet comes too close to the sun, that can disintegrate. But uh, sometimes in history, you get these clusters of comets, not even related uh, to each other, but that they just happen to come over a particular year or uh, a couple of years or a decade, you can get a number of, of really great comets. So we haven't been blessed with a, seeing a lot of great comets in uh, recent decades, but uh, there have been some, but not as great as in history. Uh, but but who knows what we'll see, you know, and, and it's, it is one of those things that's very exciting. I mean, I have my favorite comets in history. Uh, the Newton's, Isaac Newton had a comet, the 1680 comet, uh, and that may have played some part in his, un, his coming to grips with even gravity, uh, the concept of gravity, uh, and understanding that and making his calculations in that regard. Uh, it, it was a truly astonishing comet, a very wide comet, much wider than the full moon, uh, and extending, uh, extending way up into the sky, a very, very long, some reports even suggesting it, it stretched across the whole of sky from one horizon to the other. Uh, my other favorite comet, uh, is the great comet of, of 1842, a really long, beautifully long uh, comet, uh, really bright and, um, uh, and, and stayed in the sky for a good little while and, and lots of gorgeous uh, representations of that in the book. Uh, so it really is comets are astonishingly beautiful entities and um, no, it's, it's, it's one of those things, a great comet will be lovely to see and uh, I look forward to surely we'll see one in the next decade or so um, 
uh, by statistics, I would reckon we're overdue a good one at this point. I'm I'm so glad you say that. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Well, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I, you know, really, one of the, when you live as a human in this life, you want to see a great comet, you want to see the northern lights, you want to see a meteor storm, and you want to see a total solar eclipse. You know, yeah. it's worth going out of your way to see those things. I mean, next year in 2017, uh, there'll be a total solar eclipse in the United States. Uh, there'll be another one in four. Those will be great opportunities to see. Uh, and a, a total solar eclipse, uh, uh, but but a great comet and a meteor storm. Now, a meteor storm, wow. That, I, I discuss meteor storms in the book and, and kind of go over that in, a, in an appendix at the end because it does relate to the biblical text in some way. So uh, it's really exciting, amazing to wit- witness these things. And if you read the account, it's just breathtaking. All right, I want to go and see it all now. <laughs> the, yeah, I should say again for those people listening, the 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 images in the book are so great. It's, it's brilliant stuff. So worth looking at for that. Even if even if you can't deal with all the science, <laughs> look at the pictures. So speaking of some of the science, you say here's here's a quotation from the book. Um, you say the star was an intrinsically bright, very large, narrowly inclined retrograde long period comet that made close passes by both the sun and earth. That sounds awesome, but what on earth does that mean? Well, it's, 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 it's a lot of information, uh, and without burdening everyone with it, um, one of the things to step back here for a moment is to say, uh, it is, it's, it's amazing that you can, uh, with the data in the biblical text, you can say so much about the Star of Bethlehem as a comet. Um, it, 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 you know, we were talking about the fact that it's visible for a year. That alone tells you that it was a large, long period comet. It took a, a long, long time for that comet uh, to return uh, to around complete an orbit or, or return to one particular spot uh, around its orbit. Um, and, and sometimes it, uh, that kind of comet will never return. But uh, this tells you that it was a large one, a bit like Comet Hale-Bopp. Comet Hale-Bopp, unlike a lot of comets, I mean, it can be very small, 1, 2, you know, 10, 40, uh, 10, 40, 100 kilometers comets can be. Uh, Hale-Bopp was in the range of 40 to 70 kilometers in diameter. Uh, the the Christ comet, it seems to me, would have been in the same ballpark as Hale-Bopp, uh, maybe slightly bigger. Um we know of comets that are absolutely humongous. Uh, one comet is actually reckoned to be between 100 and 300 kilometers that was seen during the scientific period. Um, so, yes, it, it would be very much like that. Uh, and again, that tells you a lot right there because Comet Hale-Bopp was uh, known. It had very pe- peculiar characteristics or set of characteristics in the way it reacted to the sun, which we can assume uh, the star of Bethlehem was very like because it behaved similarly and was visible for the same length of time. Hillbop was visible in total to the naked eye for 18 months. Uh, the star of Bethlehem visible for at least uh, 12 months, uh, probably uh, longer. So these comets are loaded with uh, volatile chemicals, which means they start reacting to the sun even when in the outer solar system. And so they remain visible for a very, very long time. Uh, 
you know, uh, what, what, what can we say about it? Extremely bright. It would have become at its peak brighter than the full moon. Uh, it would have developed a very long tail. You know, we can we can even use uh, calculations to determine the length of uh, a comet's head and tail and make brightness calculations of how bright it would have become. I do that all in the book. And, and this is not just done for the star of Bethlehem, but done for uh, many ancient comets based upon ancient comet reports. Uh, and, you know, its orbit would have been relatively flat relative to Earth's orbit. Uh, something else we can see and you can see the justification for that in the book uh, it's actually when you put the whole thing together it's the very type of comet that nowadays uh, astronomers are a bit worried about because uh, because it's large with a pretty flat orbit if you want to put it that way like the planets and it's coming the other way around the sun it's the type of comet that threatens earth if it were to hit earth that would be uh, goodbye we would all be toast so um it's, it's that kind of comet. So astronomers tend to be worried about this kind of comet, long period of comet. You don't really know what's coming until quite late. There's not much you can do to stop it. So uh, there's nothing you can do to stop it, really, um, in spite of all the theorizing. So, uh, you know, we're, what are we saying? Um, it's uh, brighter than the full moon, stretching across the sky, uh, one of the most, uh, the most prominent object in the sky uh, in the evenings. Uh, for for months, really, it would have been. Now, I, I guess what we should say is, you know, well, what is the evidence that the star was a great comet? Uh, you know, we haven't really set that out, and it's important to, to ask that question of what what does Matthew lead us to believe about the star? How can we say that that fits with the comet? Well, the fact that the Magi saw the star at its rising, and that means in the eastern sky, in the morning sky, in the east. And then by the time they get to Jerusalem and they're in a hurry because the, a newborn baby's uh, been born, they want to go worship him. So they're not going to dilly dally. So you've got to assume that they're doing this within a relatively short period of time. You're talking at most a few months, a couple of months. Uh, so in that time frame, uh, this entity has moved from the eastern sky to the southern evening sky. Well, that tells you, tells an astronomer, this thing is moving this thing is in the solar system, in fact, in the inner solar system, because uh, you're actually perceiving it, moving it within the framework of the stars. Well, that tells you it's a solar system object and tells you it's a comet. The fact that it appears suddenly and remains visible for a year, that tells you not just that it's a comet, but it tells you that it is a large comet, like a Hale-Bopp type comet. The fact that it has this rising, the Magi say we saw the star at its rising, well, that language is very distinctive. Only The only astronomical entity that has a surprising rising and an impressive rising is a comet because a comet is reacting to the sun and it is reacting most, most uh, severely, if you will, at the point that it's closest to the sun. And that is when it's emerging from the sun, which is called the rising. So the fact that they say we saw his star at its rising, that tells you really it's a comet. The fact that it stood over the house, that exact language is used by Josephus uh, of a comet uh, in the run-up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He says that the comet stood over Jerusalem. So that very language used of a comet, and even the language of going before uh, historians talking about a, a Greek general in, in uh, Timoleon uh, uses this very language of it going before and leading uh, Timoleon as he went toward uh, Sicily. So all of those things are telling you 
that it's a comment. And, and again, I don't want to be, uh, uh, I don't want to come across as over dogmatic, but really when you put together the evidence, and the evidence is really strong. It, it seems almost to me a, a pretty much uh, a no-brainer. It has to be a comment. A comment's the only thing that ticks all the boxes and fits naturally with what Matthew says. And then when you add it to Numbers 24-17, where Balaam prophesies the scepter star, which even the Hebrew word uh, scepter there is often rendered by the top uh, linguists uh, as uh, as comet. And you'll see that in a number of the translations, it will actually be translated there, comet. Uh, th this is Matthew's alluding, as most commentators will, of Matthew will agree. Matthew's actually alluding to that prophecy, saying it's fulfilled uh in the star, and the early Christians believed that too, subsequent to Matthew. So, uh, you know, here we're talking about a prophecy which is said to be fulfilled by the star, by the early Christians, which almost certainly can only naturally refer to a comet. So that, and there's, there's so much else, if you, if you get the book, you'll see I set out uh, significant evidence along with a lot of the images to back it up, um, and you'll see uh, incredible stuff. I mean, just another thing that I discovered that was really, really amazing. When when you look at the Babylonian records of comets, you find that they were interested in five, describing five aspects of a comet's appearance. Uh, two of those five are mentioned by Matthew. And that's really, it's never been noticed before, but it's a big point. The first is, when did the star first appear? That's what the Babylonian astro astronomers always tried to keep a record of when did this comet first appear and when did the comet rise? Those are two of the five things. So it's amazing that Herod asks these astronomers, when did it first appear? These astronomers knew the answer to that and they were able to tell him. And also, of course, they took note of when it rose because what it did in relation to its rising is what persuaded them that this was the star uh, that was announcing the birth of the Messiah. Yeah, and this is where things get really uh, interesting, fascinating. You've got this unique and glorious thing in the sky. How do these astronomers, these Gentile astronomers, know uh, what this star meant, that it signaled the birth of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? How, how, did, how did they get that from this? Yeah, well, no, that's it's, it's a great and it's an exciting question, really, because you, it, it, it exactly it forces you to enter into the story and say, you know, what is occurring here? Again, treating this as history, this really did happen, then how can we explain it? Well, actually, scholars have come up with the ultimate explanation for it uh, before I came along, and that is obviously the fact that they're bringing gold and frankincense, among other things, and and, and myrrh, of course, that's being influenced by Old Testament prophecy. Uh, now, why are they... Uh, you know, where are they being exposed to this? Well, most naturally, there are Jews that live in the same area as them, and they've been exposed to these Old Testament oracles by uh, their Jewish neighbors and friends. So I think that's long established in the whole discussion. But when we really kind of look at that uh, more closely, well, then what in particular has led these Magi to interpret this star, this astronomical phenomenon? in the ways that it has. Um, and I think there are two particular texts which really drive it. Uh, one is the oracle of Balaam in Numbers 24, 17, which looks forward to this comet, this scepter star, which was going to announce, was going to 
announced the coming of Messiah. If you actually look at Numbers 24, 17, it's uh, looking forward to the Messiah as the scepter star. But that strange way of conceptualizing it is obviously being interpreted by the early Christians. And I think in line with what Balaam obviously was intending, that this is uh, suggesting that the Messiah's coming will be announced by a great scepter star, a comet. Um, and so you get this... Uh, this oracle, which they've obviously seen as important because at its rising, this uh, this comet would have been at its most brilliant. It would have been at its, uh, to its longest, uh, so longest and the brightest. That's stunning. And, and again, uh, when you get the book, you'll see lots of images of comets that are having a rising and you'll see how majestic and how beautiful and stunning they look. And in this case, this obviously was a particularly stunning uh, straight-tailed comet because uh, scepters uh, in the ancient world uh, tended to be long, straight rods. Uh, and again, when you go into the, when you read the book, you'll see why that would be astronomically speaking. That's quite easy to uh, to explain. The other text I think that would have been very important to the Magi and would have been key to understanding them is Isaiah 7 uh, to 12, in particular 7 to 9. Uh, we have the oracle, of course, in Isaiah 7, 9, about the virgin shall conceive, give birth to a son, a uh, child. And then and then we have um, Isaiah 9, 1, where we read about this, this prophecy of a great light that will shine into the deep darkness uh, to signal that the Messiah has been born. Uh, and that great, that, that is reinforcing the prophecy uh, in uh, Isaiah 7, 14. So, Again, uh, looking forward to Jesus and the light as the light, but also alluding to the light which would uh, announce his coming. So um, there I think the Magi are, 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 are looking and finding it. What's very interesting, of course, is their gifts of gold and frankincense it seems to be rooted in other prophecies, light prophecies in Isaiah. So it seems like they're, they're reflecting on some of these light oracles in in the book of Isaiah, which is very interesting uh, looking at Isaiah 9.1. So again, putting this all together, the, the Magi have obviously seen things in the, in the sky that they've struggled to explain with reference to their normal paradigms. Uh, this the, What this comet has done has stretched them beyond what their paradigms can cope with, and they've felt that they needed to resort to uh, Hebrew oracles to understand what this uh, star was doing. So they were able to identify not only is this uh, the star of a great ruler, not only is this the star of a king, uh, but it is also uh, more particularly the star of the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and so that leads them ultimately to take this trek to Jerusalem. And interestingly, they go to Jerusalem first, and then when they're there, they're exposed to the word of God. And that's one of the beauties of, of, of them going to Jerusalem, because there it's the word of God, the Old Testament oracle in particular uh, in Micah, which leads them to put, it's the final piece of the puzzle, which tells them where uh, the, the baby is, more particularly within Judea. So uh, the star drives them toward the word, which uh, ultimately leads him right to the Messiah when the star then attending and being there to help them complete the mission. So it's a beautiful coming together of the word and nature. Uh, and at a time when we tend to uh, you know, drive together 
or drive apart, rather drive a wedge between science and faith. Uh, the Star of Bethlehem and what happened uh, with regard to the Magi and the star caused us to re-examine the issue and allow science and allow uh, the uh, astronomy to engage in a natural and beautiful way with theology and, and particularly with biblical studies. And I can honestly say this was – when I – it's so exciting. I, I can't describe to you when I went up to uh, meet with some of the, the key astronomers that helped me and, and, and all of this, I have to pay tribute to some key astronomers uh, that did calculations for me and tutored me and guided me and read over my work and helped me in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, but the, the, the conversations were so gripping. It was like an explosion when you put together the biblical data and the astronomical uh, knowledge. Uh, it really was so exciting. One time, you know, I went up at 11 o'clock in the morning to this observatory. And uh, we literally didn't eat until 6 o'clock. And uh, there was such an excitement. Uh, it wasn't just for me, but also on the part uh, of, of uh, in particular, one of the astronomers. But both of the astronomers I was dialing with were excited, really excited. And, and the putting together of the, the historical biblical data and the astronomy was just explosive. And I, by the end of it, at the intensity of it, I was actually physically shaking. Uh, it was like that. But what an amazing encounter it was. It's an amazing thing to have come across something that is that's been in debate for so long, and then to find what really does look like the key to to answering the question, and um, for you to be in a position of putting those things together. Well, I, I mean, it really was. It was one of those things where, uh, yeah, it, it was. I'm not going to understate how painful it was. You know, at times I've been getting these emails, long emails from some of the well some of the very top comet astronomers in the world. Uh, and, you know, I had to work hard to process and understand them. I had to read them over and over again to make sure I understood them. I had to write back to them to say, have I got the right end of the stick here? Uh, am I understanding you correctly? Is this correct? And, you know, that those were those were painful and yet very important uh, parts of this journey. Uh, very, It was very stressful at, at times like that. Um, but, it, you know, it was a, it is a, it was a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to come into another field and be so welcomed, as I always felt by the astronomical community. Uh, so there is something beautiful about that kind of interdisciplinary work. Um, and you know, these guys—they give me sometimes weeks of their time. You know, and and, and even wrote a, one of them wrote a, a computer program to resolve to make calculations wow. uh, for the book. So it's just. Really, you know, and those are provisions from from God ultimately, and I couldn't have done it, just couldn't have done it without that, you know. So it's just a wonderful experience and a wonderful adventure. And so, upon write, writing this book, was really kind of uh, I felt very exciting because I'm I feel like I'm, you know, introducing the people of God to something very exciting and to what God did in history, the confirmation of of what He had prophesied that he was keeping his word and and uh, this was indeed his son and ignatius is really interesting because he um you know he, he goes in and talks about the star as being this this uh, mysterious revelation of a mystery if you want to put it that way where uh, how did god reveal what he was doing on earth uh, how did he reveal it to uh to the rulers and principalities he, he does so by this uh by the announcement 
through uh, the star. Uh, so, it, you know, and then proceeds to describe the star. So, it, you know, it is it's really exciting to kind of put it into history and think, you know, this is a, this is a kind of a, a beautiful testament to what God did. And at a time when so many people want to say, you know, deny that God is uh, responsible for his creation. You know, isn't it beautiful that uh, comet, it's a comet that brings us back and where it's really God's thumbprint over uh, his His creation. So um, to me, that's a beautiful thing. And then also at a time when so many people are disparaging about, uh, you know, at least in the popular press, you know, disparaging about the biblical text and the historical claims of the Gospels. Uh, probably nothing is, you know, in the popular press is more kind of poo-pooed than the star. You know, when you see a documentary, they're very quick to run to it being myth or, or something like that. But but that this is can be authenticated, that everything that Matthew says, taken at face value, not messing around with it, not playing around with it, looking at it in its historical, astronomical context, everything makes perfect sense. And not only that, but the part that uh, in the second half of the book, I go in to look at how um, we have another astronomical account in the New Testament, which uh, describes the birth of Jesus in astronomical terms. And that when you extrapolate the data from that, you can actually you find a portrait of a comet, which is identical to the, com the portrait of a comet uh, in every respect that we get in Matthew. And so you actually can recreate uh, what the Magi saw, because it's still the question, isn't it? It's the question, what did the Magi see? Someone is to be born, that, that someone has just been born, that he is an important dignitary. No, he's the king. He's the king of the Jews and that he is worthy of worship because they go there to worship him. I mean, what did this, what could even just set everything aside and just let your brain imagine what on earth could have happened? What could, could have persuaded them of all of this? Uh, and I think the Bible actually gives us the answer, and the answer is really profound and, and enables a whole uh, consistent profile. And, and what's amazing is the two of them fit together. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. It's something, again, I'd encourage your listeners to, to get the book and share in the, in the wonder and the excitement of, uh, of, of, of what I was doing the last number of years, uh, because it really, it really is an amazing journey. Yeah, and that stuff we don't want to give too much away in this interview. But that that, uh, as you say, that latter part of the book dealing with um, a text in Revelation with um, the constellations, the orbit of the star, that stuff just has to be read. It's so fascinating. Well, it is. And but what's most amazing is that the very the very profile of the comet which emerges and the orbit that emerges is perfectly consistent with Matthew's. I mean, you've got to think of comets here, and I know our audience isn't astronomically inclined, but, uh, you know, a comet can literally do anything. It can come in from any direction. It can have as long an orbit. It can uh, it can be far away from the sun. It never comes close to the sun. It can come close to the sun. It can do any number of things in its orbit. But what's amazing is that you can have two orbits that are perfectly consistent. That's really breathtaking. It's really, I mean, it's some people that have read the book, you know, occasionally get uh, someone who's kind of, kind of skeptical about it, but what they're not getting is how astonishing that is. That's something that, I, I mean, someone needs to, to do a kind of mathematical calculation of the chances of that, because it's absolutely minimal that you could have two cometary orbits and profiles, which are perfectly consistent. And, you know, that blows you away. And, but the wonderful consequence of it all is 
that you can set out, therefore, based upon the latest astronomical knowledge of this, using strict astronomical methods and calculations, you're able to say what the star did, when it did it, uh, then you're able to uh, work out the, um, in more detail the, precisely the profile of the star, how bright it would have become, how large it would have become, how long it would have become. You're able to say then, you're able to extrapolate from that when Jesus was born uh, for the first time. And you're able then to enter into the story of the Magi for the first time to understand their thoughts. And suddenly they go from being these kind of strangely alien mystical kind of creatures to being people that you can identify with you, you you suddenly get why they're doing what they're doing you you know why they're turning to the hebrew scriptures you know why they're they're deciding they cannot stay in their eastern homeland they must go to to welcome this m messiah uh, you, you you're able to enter into it you're able to follow the logic of it if, if you were there you would have done the same and so it's that uh, compelling nature and entering into the experience, being able to recreate what they saw. And then you get them to Bethlehem and they fall down on their faces. They feel the joy when they see the star over the house. Well, by the time you get there, when you've worked through what they've experienced and what the star has done, uh, you would have felt incredible joy. You can imagine the star, which they've been especially connected with for so long, uh, that this very star has not only revealed to them everything about this this one who's to be born and sent them on this journey, but it's actually by its, by its location relative to them and the house where uh, Jesus is, has revealed to them precisely where this person is. And you can imagine their joy, even before they go in the house, even before they knock on it, they know, even before they knock on the door, they know that this is the house because the star has pointed it out for them. And so what is it any wonder that when they enter in, that they fall down in their faces before this one whom the only information really they've been given is from the, from what they've deduced from what the star has done and a little bit from the Jewish uh, scriptures, obviously, as the scriptures have been then turned to to understand that. So the scriptures have not just a little bit, have a lot and in, 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 in help them interpret it and understand it. But the, the star has pointed them to the scriptures. It's got them all the way over here. And then they're falling down before Jesus to acknowledge this great one uh, whom they have known, discovered so much about through the star. So it's just, a, it's an awesome story that when I think you see the history and you feel the history, you suddenly will understand what I'm saying about uh, how this kind of work really enriches your reading of the biblical text and your understanding of history and, and, and as a source of worship to the believer as we appreciate what God has done to uh, to, to make uh, the the announcement of His Son's birth, and this we can go back to the supernatural thing for a second here. You know, some people think, oh well, you know, supernatural has to be supernatural. Well, wait a minute, supernatural really? That whole supernatural view, what re where really has it gotten us? Aside from the problems with it that I've already you know pointed out, has, does it really open up and and fill your heart with joy when you read the story? Maybe to some degree, and that you you appreciate the nuances of the story. But really, once you understand what God has done in history to cause this to happen, to point out to the world using his creation to do that about who his son is and what his son is destined to do, then you feel 
the power of the story and then you can enter into the nativity story in a way that maybe we never have been able to before then we can feel their joy and then we can feel their worship yeah i think you just have to emphasize again listeners you have to you have to get the book and read it um, we're in, we're in advent now this is a great time to read this and it's i think more than legitimate to read it through till epiphany and all year round isn't it i think it's it's so such a great read it's highly 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 recommended colin before we finish i have to ask you um has this changed the way you celebrate christmas have you got any recommendations for us in the light of all of this uh, do, you, do you decorate your home in a particular way do you have particular star focused celebrations well i i mean it's a it's a good question and yes it has uh affected the way uh I, I spend Christmas really, I mean, uh, I mean, Christmas is such a, a traditional thing in many ways, but when you kind of grasp what happened and, and you grasp the, the whole thing uh, of, of what God's done, it does it make that, that whole experience of Christmas so much more meaningful um, and personal. Um, one of the things that I have tried to do is get these uh, – is look for a comet uh, paraphernalia in a sense of comet Christmas decorations. There's some really beautiful things out there uh, which I, I use then to, which have the uh, nativity scene and have the magi uh, in the actual kind of tail of, of the comet. Uh, so there's there's things like that uh, that 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 I do that to to kind of uh, draw out the wonder of what God did. Uh, I, I really love. Uh, in the first chapter of the book, I go into the different traditions across the world for celebrating uh, the Star of Bethlehem. Uh, and one of the traditions which I really like is uh, the Polish tradition. You can read a little bit about uh, what what kind of Polish traditions are, but they're quite star focused uh, when it comes to their Christmas celebrations. And one of the things they do is before uh, they have their Christmas uh, celebration on, on, on Christmas Eve, we would say they go out and the children go out and look for the first star that they can see uh, that in, in the as, as the sky is darkening as at sunrise sunset rather uh, that then they run in they kind of proclaim at the star of Bethlehem and run in uh, and then that's when the the feast begins. Uh, I we're kind of incorporating that to, to be honest the last few years into our Christmas uh, celebration uh, because it's a kind of a, a nice a uh, simple way to to keep the focus on the main thing because at a time when it's so commercialized uh it's so easy to focus on purchases and, uh, and presents and uh, and giving and parties and all the different things that come with this season but you know we need to get back to uh not just talking about honoring christmas and and stop saying you know happy holidays or whatever instead of merry christmas but we need to as christians be focused on the historical reality of what God did and the wonder of uh, who Christ is and the wonder of what God did and the mystery of the incarnation. And all of, of, of what, I'm, what I've sought to do in this book is to highlight the wonder and the majesty of what God did to honor his son and to set his son apart from all those who've ever been born in the earth as the unique uh, son of God, uh, the one who has come in human flesh uh, and would ultimately destined, as I think the mirror that the Magi brought points out, destined to suffer on our behalf, as Isaiah 53 uh, prophesied, and that this is what 
was all part of that nativity story. And ultimately, I think what the Star of Bethlehem does is it highlights what Balaam said, is this one is destined to rule. It's the same as Isaiah 9. This one is destined to rule. Uh, it, it is the one uh, who whose uh, scepter appeared over uh, the house where he was. That one is the one who is destined to rule over all. Uh, all and he it is his kingdom that we must live for and it's his kingdom that alone is worth dying for well colin thank you we're so grateful for you putting in so much time and effort over the years on this project and thank you so much for taking time to speak to me today as well well thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed our conversation god bless you